Steve Pachanik with Adam Curry for September 18th, 2019. We lost a couple of good ones, Steve. Yes, we did. It's the uh, day that rock and roll died. You know, that's the old song that we said. But honestly, you lost two. The, the key ones, actually, it was your generation, Adam, and it was you in particular who made them famous on MTV. <laughs> so it's your show today, Adam. Be modest. Even though you're interviewing me, I have the right to turn around and say, Adam, you gave them an MTV award. Well, I'll... Uh... I'll tell you, I did work with uh, with Eddie. You know, he um, he had a comeback in 1987, and uh, you know he had gone through some really weird stuff. He had he took some. I think he overdosed. Was an on, well, he was yeah. an alcoholic, and he overdosed on barbiturates that he thought was cocaine after he was drinking, which is usually a bad combo. And uh, you know, and then he had a you know sciatic damage, and he had a limp, and his face was hanging. But man, that guy was funny. <laughs> well, you know, he was. A, most people don't know he was a New York policeman, and his father was a New York policeman, yep. and his grandfather. And he came out of a place that I was not privileged to go to, but I knew it was Levittown, Long Island. So he was very proud to have been out of New York, so to speak. So he's a New York boy in that sense. Totally. I think yeah. one of his other brothers was a was in the fire department. The whole family That's was right. in was in service. Yeah. 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 And, and then of course, go ahead. But you know, you made him. You know, he, that vampire video made him famous on your show. <laughs> your I, show. I think Ronnie Spector made him famous. <laughs> well, he, he kind of. You know, she had a few words to say, and Ronnie Spector's formidable. But honestly, it was the vampire film that came on the MTV show when there was Adam Curry. <laughs> and then we, of course, can't forget Rick Okasek of the Cars, and you made him well very. Uh, so I have two stories. One about Eddie, uh, yeah, and Eddie. So when he was in the studio a couple times, he had a comeback album, which included a a, a remake of "Take Me Home Tonight," uh, which he then received a Grammy for, which is all nice because he got all that before you know the end, and he was able to enjoy that. But the one thing he taught me is that, oh, Adam, Adam, it's not "Take Me Home Tonight." No, no, no. You got to sing it right. It's "Take My Bone Tonight." So that always <laughs> stuck with me. And Rico Kasich. Um, I ne- I don't think I ever worked with him, but I a buddy of mine, uh, a producer in Jersey who who came up with the Bon Jovi boys. Uh, his name is Jack Ponte. Um, he he kept in touch with him, and he got married to a Russian girl, uh, a doctor. Uh, no, my my well, uh, my buddy uh, Okasik was married to Polina Porskova, oh, and my yeah, buddy totally. was married to a Russian right. girl. She's a doctor. Right. But she didn't know about the car. She grew up in uh, Siberia. And, um, and so he, nice ca- <laughs> he called one day and he said, uh, hey, is Jack there? And she said, no, Jack's not here. Well, who's calling? Well, it's Rick from the cars. Okay, so she took a message and said, you know, the guy from the garage called and he wanted to say something about the cars. And those are my two stories. That's what I got. It's all going to be in the book. Well, you know what? I mean, I knew about him from the uh, the song Drive, but mm-hmm. he was around a long time before that in the 60s and 70s. He really made his bones in the 80s when he came on your show and, and you gave him an award on MTV. But, you know, I proceed that time. I go back to the days of Murray the K and the Swinging Soiree, uh, <laughs> Alan Freed out of Cleveland. But the most famous of all, because I grew up in Harlem, was a guy named Jocko, 
I don't know if you ever heard Jocko. of Jocko. No, 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 Jocko. I don't know Jocko. Hey, your home, mommy. This is your engineer, Jocko. Way up here in the stratosphere, we're going to holler mighty loud and clear. He say the Jocko, say the Jocko. <laughs> that is what I grew up to, that's, and I loved it. That's I mean, a bit like, uh, I think, Broadway Bill Lee took a bit of that, uh, a bit of that yeah. rhyming stuff later. That's correct. And and really the rock and roll, you know, the Million Dollar Quartet, which is a great show if anybody gets to see it, you know, talks about the Roy Orbison, Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins and uh, Johnny Cash. Brilliant, you know, writers, producers and singers at Sun Records in the 50s. But the real fathers of rock and roll go back to the 40s and the African-Americans that we really have to get tribute to little Antoine Domino, who was a Cajun. You know, most people, you know, I want my thrill on Blueberry Hill. Yeah, yeah. It's a code word. You know, rock and roll was the code word for sex. And people said that our minds were polluted. We were sick. And that's why I'm on your show. I uh, and, and, you and I get along. <laughs> and there we are. We're podcasters now. So that tells you something <laughs> about <it>. rock and roll. <laughs> Uh, Steve, it's so good to, to to catch up with you. It's been about a month, and uh, a yeah. cu- couple of things that happened. And I figured maybe we just start with uh, with Bolton finally getting uh, getting kicked out because you were calling for this the last time we talked. Correct. I I've known John for a long time personally. He and I got along quite well. The, the issue with John is, unfortunately, he's what we call a chicken hawk. In other words, he wants to go to war, but when he writes about war, he wanted to go to Vietnam. I said, fine, let's go to Vietnam. He said, no, no, I don't want to get killed in the trenches. I said, oh well, there's a problem, my friend. Uh, you want to go into Iraq, but you don't want to get killed. You want to go in Afghanistan, but you don't want to get killed. So these were guys who were proposing that we go into all these countries, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, and just this was a no-go. And in order for Trump to really fulfill his promises, he had to get rid of John Bolton and then eventually some um, some of the neocons. He brought in an interesting guy. I don't know him, Bob O'Brien, uh, presumably one of the best hostages in the history of America. I, I bow to uh, Trump's uh, designation. You know, I'm, I have no sense of competition. I, I I wish him the best. And, you know, he's national security advisor. It is not an, a really easy job. He has Pompeo, who will, in fact, handle the Zomni Halazad. The most important issue right now in the White House is really to make peace in Afghanistan. I agree with the president. I do not agree with Petraeus and Dempsey and other generals that we need our forces in Afghanistan. We do not need it. We've been there 18 years and the CIA, God bless them, uh, Gina Halsep correctly said, we don't need operatives there. They cannot be protected. We went in there on false uh, assumptions that we're going to make a nation state. We could not make a nation state. We spent $3 trillion. That was $6,500 per each citizen of the United States per day. And we, we accomplished nothing. It was a disaster. And we've lost about twenty to 50,000 men and women wounded and killed. So I'm not counting even the Afghanis. No, so I, 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 I couldn't take it as a, as a coincidence. Uh, the day before Bolton uh, resigned, was forced out, whatever it is, um, which is up to him to, to, to communicate that, um, we had the... Uh, failed Camp David meeting with the Taliban. I can't help but think those two are connected. 
I, you're absolutely correct. Actually, Zalme and Bolton are pretty close. They were neocons. But Zalme happens to be born in Afghanistan. The people he appointed to be president of Afghanistan, Karzai, trained with Zalme at the University of Lebanon and Beirut. They presumably may or may not be CIA operatives. I could care less. But Zalme knows Afghanistan exceedingly well. He spent a year and a half in Afghanistan putting the Taliban issue together along with our other allies. And we have to get out of there. John Bolton really did not understand any strategy or really tactics concerning anything relative to Afghanistan, the Middle East or Eastern Europe. The issue at hand here is really who knows what they have to know and how how strategic are you really in order to help Trump? Trump is basically an intuitive negotiator. In other words, what he does, he spontaneously decides what he wants to do. And most people think, oh, this is unbearable. This is indecisive. This is contradictory. Well, you have to understand one thing. Trump is the first businessman we've ever had as president of the United States. That is a first. When you think of that, you think of a businessman, and I was a businessman, you've been a businessman. We come in and we clean out companies. I will throw out people within minutes of the time that they come in and they're not appropriate to the task. And that's exactly how Trump runs the White House. So you are at the service of the president of the United States. Ironically, when I was a hostage negotiator, I overrode the president and I was insubordinate. I was a military officer. I was an intelligence officer. I was a State Department officer. But in the Hanafi Muslim, I overrode President Carter. I overrode the FBI. And the punishment should have been court-martial. But I wasn't. In turn, I saved 500 hostages. But my loyalty as an officer was not to the president. It was to the republic. And and those are different kind of precepts. Uh, Bolton has never been, none of his people have ever been really military officers who have been in combat or understand really the strategy and tactics of taking down a country or terrorist groups. So they work out of instincts and very poorly uh, socialized understandings of really what the enemy is or is not. Russia is not our enemy. It's never going to be our enemy. It has never been our enemy. Even when I worked in the Soviet Union and I helped to take them down, I reminded all of our operatives. All of them, including some of the serious, including your great uncle, who was very helpful, Don Gregg, and others, uh, Fritz Ehrmath, we did not take down Russia. We took down the Soviet Union. But Russia still stands with 11 time zones, and it's a formidable country, and it ironically needs a Vladimir Putin. When we had a Gorbachev there, it did not work. So that's um, the irony. Um, so with Bolton out with, I think, the whole country wanting to leave Afghanistan. Um, will that leave a void where Russia would take over, do you think? Well, it's a good question, Adam. In a way, ironically, Russia has to take over the Middle East. Russia is, is a close ally of both Iran, Turkey, and Israel. Believe it or not, I mean, hopefully Bibi will not come back to power. But when Bibi was in power, the person he ran to almost all the time, like a baby in kindergarten, was at Putin. And Putin had to titrate Bibi's understanding and emotions if, if he didn't go to Trump. And in turn, 
Putin had to handle the Iranians, the Turks, Erdogan understood it. And Russia is not in a competition with us as much as many hawks would like to say that. Russia has economic problems of its own. It has 7,000 acres that were burning. I mean, I could go on yeah. and on and on. And, and Putin, Putin himself really, uh, has to defend his position a bit these days. Yeah, I mean, but Putin and Trump, Trump correctly says we're very close. And they are, because Putin understands Trump better than our own people understand him. Now, I don't know if my thinking of the secondary mission in Afghanistan is correct, although there was a movie made about it based on uh, on on actual facts. Looking at the bases we have in Afghanistan, they clearly surround poppy fields, um, I've always believed that it's some somewhere someone's complicit in this and is bringing poppies to wherever they need to go. And I, the feeling that I've always gotten is looks like we're protecting those fields instead of getting rid of them. Where will where will uh, us pulling out? Where will they leave the poppy production and subsequently opioids? Well, it's a good question. Number one, the opioids. Let me put it this way. Yes, we were involved with the opioids and the poppy fields, but let me put the I'm going to give you the equivalency in the civilian world. The Sackler family, who I also hit over a year ago, a psychiatrist who've been around for 30, 40 years and live in Greenwich, Connecticut, they pushed out Oxycontin, an mm-hmm. incredible addictive opioid. And they literally specified to each one of the salesperson, you will increase the number of prescriptions from 3.5 to 7.5 per day over the year, they accumulated over $13 billion on opioids. They created, directly created 400,000 deaths on opioids and two and a half million drug addicts on heroin. So we have our own little poppy field right here in Greenwich, Connecticut, and they just bankrupted their company for $3 billion, which is nothing relative to the fact that they really should be going to prison. What happens in Afghanistan is probably the Chinese will take over, the mercenaries will take over, but they don't become a strategic point for our interests at all. The Russians have to deal with that point. Okay. Well, the Chinese, they're kind of in the business, so it would make sense that they would come in and take over that. Yeah, for sure. Let's move over to to Saudi Arabia and the mysterious drones that uh, (laughs) took out some some refining production. I mean, for the New York Times to write, uh, these drones flew 500 miles from Yemen. Um, It's unclear exactly what kind of drones they were, but they flew under the radar. I'm like, no, 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 no. This can't be true. Now, now today I'm reading it. Uh, it might, although I find the holes in the in the refinery extremely well targeted and small. Apparently, we're looking at cruise missiles now instead of drones. Well, let me let me put it this way, Adam. I never look at the story that's being told, particularly by the New York Times or Mohammed bin Salman, the, the ostensible leader of. Uh, Saudi Arabia, the man who's killed Khashoggi, he's terrorized over 200 people and only killed a few million people in Yemen. So let's remember who he is. One of the key factors that came out, but nobody really realized, was the fact that Aramco, or the Saudi Arabian oil, was to go public recently. Oh, I, oh, I thought that was, off, that was off the table. It was still ready well, to go. It was off the table because the what we call the strike price or the price of the stock at the initial offering was not what Ben uh, what Mohammed had wanted or the Saudis had wanted because in fact 
without Saudi oil, we do very well. Thank you very much. The United States of America is a net exporter of oil, and we do not need Saudi oil. The reason we allow Saudi oil to go up there is to really allow them to be our subordinates or sycophants, so to say. But Mohammed bin Salman doesn't want to admit it. And honestly, if I were in his military, I would have an overthrow because he's really a danger to Saudi Arabia and to the Middle East. The truth of the matter is I don't think anything hit those uh, oil tanks. I think they blew up on their own because when you have an IPO, and this goes back to my days as a managing director of an investment banking firm, and you pull away from a strike price, that means you did not make the, fr- the, the amount of money that you wanted. Now, Mohammed bin Salman's fantasy is that he will make $2 trillion based on the net asset value of oil in Saudi Arabia. There's no way you can say that that's worth two trillion. He spends about a hundred billion a year just subsidizing the whole government and using his national guard to terrorize people and the war in Yemen, which he does not need. Millions of kids have died. It's a proxy war against Iran. And guess what? Iran will always win. They've been around a lot longer. So the bottom line is I don't believe the story. It was a 5% deficit in oil. We made it up within minutes. And Trump correctly said, oh, let me see. I don't think anything hit them. But it was Iranian uh, operatives involved or machinery baloney. You know, this is a self-destructive element in order to get the oil price up and it didn't work because we can flood the markets in minutes this is so that's a very i love that theory and it sounds incredibly i took a company public in 1996 so i know exactly what what pricing is we walked away from the table you know all that bullshit with the underwriters the whole thing do you know what what uh, what valuation and what's what price they wanted to get for no, but i know repeatedly that from uh, different reports they did not get the valuation that they wanted now remember this adam your audience has to understand this is not the first time that saudi arabia has wanted to go public right because they have no indigenous businesses. In other words, Mohammed bin Salman in his fantasy world is going to my agent, William Morris in Beverly Hills. He has to reach out all the Jewish guys in order to bring up, you know. <laughs> yeah, how does that uh, work out? <laughs> entertainment, that, it shows you how hard up he is. Yeah. Entertainment and uh, high tech companies. But in fact, the reality is he tried 2017, they failed to go public. 2018, they failed to go public. A few days ago, it wasn't an accident. When Bolton left, suddenly we had a, a missile strike, so to speak, in the Saudi gas tanks when, in fact, there was no missile strike. There was a deficit of 5% of oil. When there is no deficit, can, we can make it up in a nanosecond, and we do with West Texas Permian oil. Thanks to you guys right. in Texas, we can make it up. We don't even need Brent oil which is $10 more than what we do in West Permian. So basically, the Saudis are pretty much screwed. They yeah. know it, we know it, and their valuation can never come to their own assessments. In other words, they have no assets that really are valuable. So is Trump using this uh, just to rattle Iran's cage? Because he's clearly saying, "Yo, whoa, whatever happens, we're locked and loaded. We're, we stand behind you. Well, what what Trump tends to do when he says we're lock and loaded and the Iranians are pretty smart. 
They've watched Trump over the years, just like I did in New York. And we know that he actually builds what he says he builds. He built Woolman Memorial Park, ice skating ring. He built 42nd Street. He built the Trump Tower. So they're interested more than anything else. Where is Trump going to come in and where would he like to build a hotel? (laughs) (laughs) That's what North Korea wants, too. Where's my Trump hotel? That's why I think Pompeo got rid of Bolton and Pompeo is going to make a deal. And somewhere on the southeastern coast of North Korea, you're going to see a Trump Towers and a Trump hotel. Similarly, I'm not being facetious. You're going to see in Tehran and Azerbaijan and uh, Tbilisi all kinds of Trump Tower hotels. He's not interested in war, never has been, never will be. But he will use force and the threat of force in order to force you to come to the the tables. But he has no problem coming back again and again and again until he cuts the deal. And he'll cut the deal. So, okay, And so you're talking about the Iranian deal. You think that'll happen in New York? The Iranian deal, he's going to cut an Afghan deal. I'm sure there'll be a Trump Tower in Kabul. (laughs) I mean, honestly, well, but think of it. I don't have a problem with that. The New York Times might have a problem, the liberals, but on the other hand, I don't have 84,000 homeless people with shit on the streets of San Francisco and Los Angeles right on. and a governor called Newsom, who as a mayor couldn't do anything about it. So on the other hand, when Trump came in, he cleaned up 42nd Street. We didn't have a shithole. And when we went into, when he said Baltimore's a shithole, I know exactly what he meant because I had property there and I had to dump it. Because Elijah Cummings and the others didn't want to handle it. Whether you're black or white is not relevant. The only color that's relevant in America is called green. That's the color of our money. And to be fair, the cleanup of New York, I mean, I was in, I lived in Hell's Kitchen in the mid and late 80s. And I was there when, you know, 42nd Street, you know, I walked across that Saturday night, uh, Times Square, to go visit my buddy at WLTW at midnight. And it was not a friendly place. You know, I was a, no. a really tall white dude with a leather jacket. I was a prime target. Um, but it was also, um, I got to give Giuliani credit and Bill Bratton. I mean, those guys, really, they cleaned up New York. That's correct. Giuliani did a great job. The police did a great job. Now you don't have that much crime. No, I agree with you. Yeah. But it takes an individual to make that statement to actually affect some change. And that's what Trump is willing to do. Now, China. Uh, this, of course, is the toughest one. It is a tough one. G. It's really an anachronism to modern day China. In a way, he kind of. He doesn't confuse me, but he's really an anachronism. In other words, modern day China is the modern young kids that you saw rioting in Hong Kong. That's the equivalent in Tiananmen Square or in Beijing or Shanghai. China pretty much is 60 percent of young kids, 30 years and younger. I saw China, I mean, a couple of years ago. It was amazing. You have a 10 story building always filled with young men and women, Chinese. And that 10-story building had only American and English books. Now, if I had 10-story buildings of Chinese books in the United States, I would pass out because I don't think our students are as good as that. So, in fact, what I'm really saying is I have faith in the youth of China, not so much in the President Xi's or the Li. I think the secondary, the prime minister who is in charge of economics, will make the deal possible in terms of 
getting away from this tariff war, which really doesn't help anybody. And contrary to what Trump is saying, we are paying the, the dues that we have to pay for the tariffs and our businessmen cannot afford it. We have 170 com companies that are small businesses from TVs to screens to telephones to toys. We just can't accommodate to that. We can change our venue where the products are made, but in fact, you have to always respect the one thing in foreign policy America rotates around, and this is a key element that I've said to every one of my operatives, foreign policy in America is about business. That's it. And if you're going to do business with China, let's make it fair and clean. And let's get the resolution quickly. So I think Trump will get a resolution pretty quickly. Do you and think the Chinese really, really want to play fair? Do you think the Chinese want a straight up fair deal? I don't think they want to. They don't have a choice. Their economy has gone down 15 to 20 percent. It's it's an artificial economy. What most people don't understand, it's based on a credit system. So whenever Xi wants somebody in the Politburo, which is an anachronism in modern day China to say I'm part of Mao Zedong's Communist Party, that's absurd. Even Deng Xiaoping thought that was absurd. But when he when Xi says that, then in fact, he gives out the money to those around him. And we've already busted some of his cousins in Australia and elsewhere. Right. And we'll continue to arrest some of those officials until Xi understands this can't continue for either China, the United States or Europe. And at some point, he's going to hurt. And he knows that because internally, the growth rate is very small. And they always say it's less than 6%. I never believed it was 6% to begin with. The GDP and the net asset values have gone down markedly. In other words, he and the company, let me put it in a technical terms, he and his financial advisors don't mark to the market. So when they consider an asset there, they don't consider the total leverage buyout element. So if it's leveraged buyout at 100 million, it's worth nothing. They'll say it's worth 100 million. They won't mark to the market. So it's a false number to begin with. And and honestly, he's, he's got problems. So well, that's my way of saying it. it's a it's a problem. Yeah. Well, anyone who who uh, looks at stock markets and you and I talk about that a lot, you know, you can't trust the Chinese companies with anything. You know, they're all full of crap. They lie. They lie all the time. I'm shocked. Rick, <laughs> this is a casino. Rick, you owe me the 40,000 euro of Casablanca, you know. <laughs> well, well, you're right, Adam. But, you know, that's what we have to deal with. And Trump understands liars and he understands prevarication. I mean, he knows how to use it. He knows how to manipulate it. And that's what this is about. Yeah. And uh, Pompeo, I think, will culminate a deal in North Korea. I think Kim Jong-un. Again, I go back to the fact that I went to Swiss boarding school. So did he. But he went for four years and I went for one week because I was kicked out as being too American. <laughs> so Kim Jong-un has to have more assets and qualifications than I had. So well, that's why I can say that. Let's uh, look at the European Union for a moment. There's two things that are playing in my uh, in my field of view. Uh, since we're well, well, why don't we stick with finances for a moment? Now we have this fantastic negative interest rate, which it you know the way I see it, if you have a a sovereign bond and it uh, yields a negative interest rate, that's basically you're defaulting. I think uh, it, 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 people don't agree with this, but to me, it's like, well, I'm I'm going to lend you money, uh, and you're going to pay me back ninety nine percent. Well, there's a speculation ways, part, of course, there's a speculation to, you know, uh, the what you can sell the bond for. But in, in, in fact, it's just it's 
it's uh, less worth than than the day you get it. That's correct, Adam. Uh, the financial part of the EU is not in good shape, in part because of Brexit. Uh, Boris Johnson really has no idea what he's doing, which is what we talked about yep, yep. a month ago and several months ago when he came in. And I said, Theresa May had no idea. And now his brother, John Johnson, left correctly and he's lost parliament. He lied to the queen and there is no plan for Brexit. So what happens in effect is, once again, the predominant country in Europe, and it may have a negative bond rate, is will always be Germany. There's no question about it. Germany is a formidable country. It has a quasi-socialist element to it. But the national character is such is that they can always grow. They haven't grown as much this year because of the cars they're making. But even with a negative bond rating, what in fact it means is that, yeah, I'll sell you bonds. You don't have to pay me the interest rate. We'll pay you to hold my bonds. Pretty much. That's basically what it means. But remember, in this world of make-believe money, we're playing with make-believe money. In other words, those bonds are as valid as the uh, as the money we have in our pockets, which says, in God we trust. So mm -hmm. when I ask somebody, what's the difference between a $5 bill and a $10 bill, and they tell me it's twice as much, I said, thank you very much. <laughs> That's psychological operations, when in fact there is no difference. So those bonds are basically a way to allow their governments to get out of trouble, while at the same time spending an incredible amount of money and wasting it. For France, it's an issue that 70 to 80 percent is, you know, already uh, indented or it's really uh, earmarked for all kinds of social programs and they can't go anywhere. For Spain, they're trying to get out of problems, but they have Catalan tries to break away. They have the Basques trying to break away. Madrid is corrupt, the central part. You've got Italy, which is a total joke now. I mean, it's a disaster. It had been a disaster from the time I worked in the Red Brigade, and it hasn't changed. I don't even know if it's a nation state. It has Venice. It has Milan. It has various elements, Calabria, but I don't even know if it really works. Corruption, it's its main collateral, as it is in major countries. So basically what you have in Europe are a group of nation states, so to speak, that are interdependent, but really are not producing as much. Uh, they're not producing the assets that are quite valuable to the world. And that's a problem because Germany used to produce the cars. We don't need as many cars anymore. We're dumping these cars. And so Germany has to reassign its priorities to say, OK, what are we going to be making now? France has the uh, nuclear uh, capability because it has an, a nuclear uh, well, they're, but they're, power. they're starting to shut that down, aren't they? Wasn't that part of their plan? It, that's correct. And so, you know, they're going to go more to high tech and we'll see what happens in France. But again, <laughs> I'm not that optimistic. No, the French, I, I got to tell you, the French uh, were so leading in technology in the, I want to say it was the late 70s, they had Minitel. Which was uh, which was a, a terminal. You connected it to your phone line. It was just a, a text only terminal. And I think it was it got really big in France because prostitutes started advertising on it. it and but they were way ahead of the internet. It was phenomenal. That's correct. You hit it on the head, and somehow they lost the lead. And now you hit it right on the head. The French have a real problem, a discrepancy between reality and, and the fantasy they want to talk about. Uh, Macron likes to say, oh, yeah, we have egalité, 
we have equality, we have justice and all. But what he doesn't mention is that in 1995, the French once again, with about 190 paratroopers of a special unit, literally slaughtered about a million Tutsis uh, within 110 days, right underneath yeah. Mr. President Clinton. And Bill did not do anything about it, nor did Hillary. Uh, and when they talk about Trump not doing anything in terms of uh, these shootouts that we have here, uh, let's talk about a million Tutsis that were literally gunned down in cold blood, uh, and the Catholic Church was involved, but so was France. No, you know this that that part of history is so poorly uh, documented; it's really not talked about. Well, you know, I grew up in France, so before the Vietnam War and I was drafted, I said, oh, let me see. Uh, the French just beat the hell out of the Algerians here, and they went to Algeria in 56 and 60s, and they said Algeria is France. And I'm saying, wow, how come you got a million Algerians in prison camps if that's France? Then they go into Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, and they beat the hell out of them. When I had asked Lee Ducteau, I was the head of uh, the Vietnamese when I was involved with the Cambodian negotiation. I asked him, what was the difference between the United States occupation and the French, knowing fully well the French had abused the Vietnamese and tortured them? He said, you Americans are lazy. <laughs> said, Thank you very much, Mr. Man. Wow. That was the major difference. And every time France gets on a high horse, I, I hope Mr. Macron gets his reality check very quickly. Well, I have to say, though, you see what uh, Macron, he, you know, he had his big uh, parade and he had a hoverboard, a soldier you know, on a hoverboard flying over the Champs-Élysées. And now there's increased talk of the EU army. Is this real? Uh, you can talk about it. Uh, I don't know what the EU army is. As, as Trump correctly said, let me see. You're going to have EU army. Who's your enemy? Russia. Well, you're piping in oil from Russia to Europe <laughs> to Germany. Yeah. So let me understand it again. You know, there's a lot of solipsism here, or a lot of absurd talk. And, you know, I would not depend on any coalition, particularly not with the French. They, uh, ironically, my father was in the French army in World War II. They were 2.2 million on the German front in 39. And I asked my father, what was the first and last order he received from his French superiors? He said, retreat. Hmm. So pretty much France. In the meantime, they do a lot of damage. As for an EU army, the only ones I would, again, you have to go back to history. Germany is the most formidable force in Europe. You know, they started wars, they know how to end it, and they know how to get out of poverty. And that's basically the bottom line. And of course, you know, them even pretending that uh, that Russia is their big enemy when right now they're in the final throes. And interestingly, I don't think we spoke since uh, uh, since Greenland when uh, Trump offered to buy Greenland. Uh, what's interesting to me about that is that, you know, it's obviously uh, uh, owned by Denmark. Denmark is the last country that needs to approve the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which would open up another huge uh, capacity uh, into Europe from Russia. And obviously, you know, we don't want that. Uh, do you follow this at all? What's going on with Denmark? 
Not really. I'm I'm not a fan of Denmark for many other reasons. It has to do more with World War II, where they created this nonsensical story that the king of Denmark had put on a Jewish star in defiance of the Germans. Nothing corresponded to reality. The, mm. the Germans came in and they were collaborators and they were incredible collaborators. And, you know, the Danish can tell me anything they want. But number one, I, I defer to you, but I do not see Denmark having a call on Greenland. Not in fact, when we were putting bases there in 1960, right. and we had intricate bases, uh, you know, in subterranean areas in Greenland. And Greenland is not really a viable entity for me in terms of force or economics. So the prime minister can say whatever she wants, but she's totally irrelevant to me. As in terms of what we need and what we require, I just say we do what we have to do and forget about it. We don't apologize. Hmm. So I, I don't follow the specifics of it, but the Greenland issue was close to me, but I know we have bases and I know yeah. we've had military, uh, you know, and, and it was not a crazy idea because of the mineral rights. And if you look at Greenland, it comes closer to North America than it does to Europe or anywhere else. You, you bringing up uh, World War II is, <clears throat> is interesting because one of the promises uh, President Trump made um, to Poland is that he would get Poland on the visa waiver program, uh, which every I think every other EU country is is a member of, and that keeps getting held back by, as far as I can tell, a uh, um, uh, representatives who still hold on to their belief that Poland was worse for the Jews than the Germans. You know, I, I, I don't buy, you know, there were th hundreds of thousands of Catholic Poles who were killed, hundreds of thousands of Lutherans who were killed. Uh, you know, this story of the Jews dying in the millions or six million. OK, let put that out there. But what we don't talk about is what Hitler correctly said. Who remembers the Armenian genocide? 1914, one and a half million Armenian Christian Armenians died. Three years later in Izmir, another half a million Armenians died. That's two million. And Hitler says, who remembered the Armenian genocide? Then we don't talk about the Lutheran priests who were killed. We don't talk about the Catholic priests who were killed. We don't talk about the homosexuals, the gypsies. So if you put it all within a spectrum, you know, which country is guilty of something? We have to put Holland up there. Holland, as you <laughs> the, know better than I, the NSB, the absolutely nonsensical story of all the <laughs> Anne Frank story. Give me a break. That was absolute absurdity. Holland was the biggest co-conspirator with the Nazis. Even the Nazis said, how did you round up 96 percent of all the Jews without even help, without our help? And not, they had next to Poland, they had the highest amount of roundup of Jews. So when it comes to storytelling. Give me a break. You know, yeah. Holland is up there. Paul, they're all up there. No country was, you know, absent of vice. It's not just the Jews. It's Muslims. It's But then why, why the hell are, are we have these groups who are protesting, you know, Jewish backed groups. And, and I should mention for people who are new to the show, Steve is a bona fide Jew, so he can say whatever I can't. I lean back on these stories a little bit and I won't get in trouble. <laughs> the ADL has my number. <laughs> 
you know, I have to say it very clearly. I came out of the Holocaust. My first memories I had were of German prisoners of war in France. I saw the French. I saw the German prisoners of war. I grew up with it. Their family members were gone. But for me to hear that Israel helped and saved the Jews during World War II, absolute nonsense. When when Eichmann came in 39 and offered, and by the way, Eichmann spoke Hebrew. Contrary to what everybody huh. said, nor was he the man in charge of the of the concentration camps. It was Heydrich, an Austrian Jew, who was in charge, and they don't talk about it. They don't talk about it. All we, all we got was Sound of Music, Steve. That's our history lesson. I That's- know, but the Sound of Music <laughs> is a very indicative issue of the Austrian Catholics who yep. were killed. Nobody talks about Austrian Catholics. What the hell was the Baron doing in America? That's what was happening. So Hitler had made sure he had cleaned out the Catholics, the Lutherans, and he cleaned out the SA. In 1933-34, he and, and Ribbentrop and others cleaned out hundreds of members of his own party and made sure that any homosexual was gone, any reason of opposition was gone, blah, blah, blah. So history is far more complicated than, yeah, we we died and then suddenly the state of Israel came up. No, the state of Israel didn't want any Jews during the time of World War II. Instead, they were offered when Eichmann came, they said we would rather have 300 cows per person. And that was Ben-Gurion and the American Jewish Congress. What happened in 65, the Americans pulled out of the Middle East and suddenly Israel had to come up with a storyline. Whoa, what about the Holocaust? And so, you know, again, it's a manipulative technique. I wish Israel the best. Get rid of Bibi. He's an American factotum that we put there. Totally spoiled, corrupt brat who went to MIT. And if he wants to serve Israel, let him die in Israel. But we're the ones who gave him the cannon fodder and get rid of him. Who's a, who's who's a, who, is there anyone whose name is popping up as a uh, as a successor? Probably uh, Benny Gantz, the general who's in charge. I would say he's a very honorable man. He's chief of the military. I would say he would have an Arab coalition. And for the first time, the, the Arabs have grown. There's about a million in Israel. I got to give him credit. Sixty percent of them voted to get BB out. And so there will be a coalition with him and Lieberman. And so hopefully Israel will come back to a normal state without having to go back to history and manipulate everybody. Yeah. So it'll be a nation state. A philosophical question, you know, knowing yes. what we know uh, about the Jews and the Holocaust and or what is told. And uh, and you have, as you said, the Armenian genocide. There's 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 many different uh, chapters in history where entire religions were targeted, and now Christianity appears to be on the docket, including in the United States. What? Right. Why? What is this about? Well, you know, you hit on something important, Adam. For 20 years, I've been going to the Coptics, the, uh, uh, all of the various Christian organizations as I've been to Egypt and elsewhere, and I've, I've found that the primary targets for the past 10 to 15 years have been Christians all over the world for the simple reason that you are 
Christianity, in contrast to Judaism, where we would say Islam grew out of Judaism because we were the writers, Christianity comes as a direct defiance to Islam and Muhammad. And you are the hardest to proselytize into Islam. We're, we're considered like a cousin or a brother to Islam. But if you go into the various countries, you're slaughtered. Somewhere between 20, 20 to 25 million Christians have been slaughtered the past 10 to 15 years. The reason for that goes all the way to the Middle East. Why don't you go to Saudi Arabia and ask Mohammed bin Salman, our great ally and the friend of uh, our uh, Kushner, uh, I'd like to build a church next to Mecca and Medina <laughs> see what happens. Yeah. No, yeah. One of the things that I said, oh, they're such a great ally, so let's build a church. Forget a synagogue. Let's build a church. Watch what happens. You can build a church in Jordan. King Hussein doesn't have a problem. You can right. build a church in Iran. I've seen churches, but you can't build it with our so-called great ally. Is that real? No. And that's where Christianity has to come to the forefront. The other issue is I've said to the fundamentalist Christians here in this country, get your act together. I need a narrative that is equal to what the Jews talked about in the Holocaust. I want to hear a narrative that's consistent with Christianity and the fact that you guys are getting slaughtered at a phenomenal rate all over the world and you don't even talk about it. And tell me why you don't talk about it. Well, we had a conference, I was told. Well, that's not good enough. I want to hear it. You're the first one to bring it up on the radio. I've never heard about it publicly, and I've said it repeatedly. Where is the discussion about Christian slaughter for the past 10 years, from the Middle East to South Asia? You go to Pakistan and say to somebody in Pakistan, the ISI or any one of the religious uh, Sunnis there, you're a Christian fundamentalist. See what happens. Now, what we're seeing here in the United States, though, and I, I think that is part of uh, the lack of any story is that the leftists, liberals, um, it, first of all, they equate any Christian with hard right conservative and kooky. When? How did this happen? It's very it's very easy, my friend. It's simple. What the left has not understood is really the beginnings of America. You know, Obama tried to change the story. That didn't work. It, America was very clearly based on Christian values. It was not a Jewish country. It was not a Muslim country. It was a Christian. Many of them were deists. Many of them may not have gone to church, but that's not the issue. This country was based on Christian values, and it grew that way. The left has to distort the discussion because they feel they were not part of this Christian, what I call entrepreneurial background, that we don't study. And we don't study the fact that in the 1880s, 1890, our major religion was not even Christianity. It was entrepreneurship. <laughs> and we were developing companies right and left. Yes, there were the Carnegie's, the Rockefeller's, but they didn't come out of nowhere. They were a function of the American mainstream. And then eventually they became benefactors. But the left and the liberals have had no understanding of the history. Well, look at the institutions that we go into, because now they're coming to the forefront. Cornell, Harvard, MIT, all polluted with corruption. Not only the, the, the movie stars who've gone in there, you've got the corruption that went with Epstein. For mm -hmm. 20 years, he went to MIT and bought off professors whom I've known about and were famous 
And the president of MIT, a man who was born Jewish in Venezuela, who barely writes English, can barely speak correctly, writes back to me, thank you for your responses when I said you're a pathological liar, you should <laughs> resign. And you've ha you know very well that at MIT, where I got my PhD, it's not valued the same way today that it was in the past. I go to Harvard and I say the same thing to Bacow who's the president of Harvard. How come you didn't say anything the past five months that Epstein was one of your main $6 million supporters? Where's the cowardice you, you're demonstrating? And thank God for the Harvard kids, because they wrote and saying, wow, there's a dead silence here. So that notion of Christianity and what should be right with your neighbors and what you do for others, it's gone. So it's lost within the ideological spectrum of conversations that don't even, they're not based on reality. Cornell suddenly changes my medical school. I went to Cornell University Medical College. I looked up on the internet and it said that Weil, W-E-I-L-L, who was named, and the school was named after a corrupt banker named Sandy Weil, was in existence since 1890. And I said, well, let me understand this. I went to Cornell University Medical College, but it was really Wild Cornell, Wild Medicine School. Now you see how perverted academia is. I can buy you off for hundreds of million. I can buy Cornell for two to 300 million. I can buy MIT for 80 million. I can buy Harvard for six to nine million. You just tell me the price and I'll buy it off. So what you have are institutions that will quote, the sine qua non of liberalism and intellectual integrity, totally corrupt completely corrupt. You have academics. What were academics? Well, we need tenure. Well, why do you need tenure? Well, because what we have to say is so important that we got to make sure we can never be fired. <laughs> Oops, I didn't know that. In the age of the 21st century on the internet, you're telling me that you were hired 20 years ago and you're repeating the same PhD nonsense you wrote 20 years ago? So they are an anachronism. And what's happening now is in the South where I live, you see kids going to community colleges, yep. they go to yep. Christian schools, they're homeschooled. That's where the force of America comes in. That's where the power of Christianity comes in. Not because they're Christians, but because the values are such that they want to make something of themselves. Going to Harvard doesn't mean anything anymore. You want to be Chinese, go to Harvard, go ahead, pay them a couple of hundred million. They'll take it. Bacow will take it. Rife will take anything. He's a whore. These guys are basically whores. Pollock, the head of Cornell, they're whores. We hire 23 more faculty. What does that mean? Hmm. Well, what does that mean? It means nothing. The intellectual content that you and I provide, which is for free, try to buy it. If we monetize it, try to buy it. <laughs> well, Steve, we, you, we can't, you, can't, no, you can't put a price on this because you are a national treasure, Steve Pachanik. Oh, yeah, oh yes, that, you are. Oh, yeah, right, right. You know what we do with national treasures? We sink them. <laughs> We should go shop and buy us a few universities. Yeah, I got a hundred mil somewhere. We can go go do oh, some damage. Tell me you don't have a university. University of Texas, Bush School. You got uh, Baker School. You know, you mm -hmm. have to do, have a prominent name, and I can buy you a school. It's the it's very MTV. It's you, baby. Influence <laughs> than anybody in the universities. I'll hand out diplomas, but I I think it's a very healthy development because what what you're saying is true. I see a lot of people deciding to homeschool, looking for alternatives, absolutely not seeing the value in uh, in a piece of paper from a, a name college. Uh, kids are seeing it. They're, they're seeing it. They're like, well, hold on a second. I was promised something good here, and I got crap. I got nothing. 
So it now, is changing. It's changing in a wonderful way because I see these men and women, they're young, and I said, what are you doing? He said, well, I love the computer. And I said, whoa. I said, do you know quantum encryption? I said, no, but I'm getting there. In other words, they know how to the cyber communicate. Mm -hmm. Do you know how to do encryption? They said, well, I'm learning it. They don't have to go to Harvard. They don't have to go to MIT. They don't need to go to Rensselaer. They're learning it on their own. And the beauty of it, they're going to have their own businesses. That's what we're about. Yeah, We don't need the degrees anymore. They're irrelevant. And so as you and I keep going on, the institutions are relevant. The power has shifted from the Northeast. I always said Alex Jones was surprised when I said the power went from the Northeast to the South. It's there in Florida where I am, and it's in Texas where you are. Well, you don't have to be a genius to see the intellectual power coming down to Texas, to Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Florida. Yep. yep. And so, oh, it has to do, there's no taxes. Oh, wow, that's an amazing concept, Adam. Are you people <laughs> works out pretty well for it well we got property taxes but we don't yeah that's uh, we, that's okay yeah. i mean you know so you buy property but in turn you get a lot for that money you know yes you get, and and you know you like austin i like where i am i've got lakes i swim in them i meet gators and snakes but you know i've worked with presidents before so it's not <laughs> <laughs> All right, Steve. Well, uh, we've done almost uh, our hour, so I think uh, oh, great, great part, uh, great moment to stop. And thank you so much. I always appreciate it. You give such insight to everything. Well, Adam, I really appreciate you. And I got to tell you, I was impressed by what you did on MTV when I looked up, you know, Moni and the others. And I said, wow, that's my friend. I'm proud, <laughs> you know? Uh, well, you're one of the few who would ever say that. It's appreciated. Anyway, you take care, my friend, and, and bless the entire audience, and I hope they have a good time. Definitely, Steve. And uh, we started with Any Money. We'll uh, end it with uh, Rico Kasich and the Cars. The one we talked about, we'll end it with Drive. Yeah, yeah it's a great song. Uh, this was Steve Pachanik with Adam Curry. Um, you never know when we'll be back again. But it does seem to happen with some uh, serious frequency. See you soon, everybody. Who's going to tell you when? It's too